Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. Well, it's interesting as I was studying this particular portion of Scripture in preparation for our time this morning, I was reminded by the fact that Hebrew narrative, and I've told you this before, slows down to an extremely slow pace at the most critical points in the narrative. And we have seen that in our study of the 10 plagues, and we see that even more so in our study on the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. In fact, if you were to look at Exodus 10, 1 through 20, and these are the 20 verses that cover this plague, 14 of the 20 verses are dedicated to conversations. 14 of the 20 are dedicated to conversations. Three verses are dedicated to the plague itself, only three of the plague in real time, And then three verses are dedicated to a narration or narrator comment. So 70% of our time in Exodus 1 through 20, 70% of the verses today focus on conversations that ultimately unfold this eighth plague, the eighth of ten plagues. And as we've studied these plagues, and you can see the chart that we've been using week after week to sort of reframe, reframe our thinking and to keep us in line as we work through the plagues. Uh, today we come to the eighth plague, uh, the plague of locusts. But from time to time, we've also mentioned that there are several sort of general observations that we've seen unfold throughout these first seven plagues, and we'll continue with plague eight, nine, and ten. Let me just remind you of those because you will see a lot of those come to fruition in our time today. So just some general observations, and you'll remember these. First, every plague is introduced with the formula Yahweh said to Moses. Remember, that's a key indicator that these plagues aren't merely natural events, but that God himself is the one orchestrating all of them. Uh, secondly, we've seen that every plague ends with a comment about Pharaoh's heart. Uh, that, that is true and that is consistent and that will continue throughout each of the plagues. And there's a little twist on that in our time together in the eighth plague this morning. And we'll look at that in a bit more, a bit more here in just a moment. Next, every plague seems to deal with a demonstration of power over a specific Egyptian god Or perhaps all of the plagues demonstrate power over all the Egyptian gods. So there is sort of an an apologetic or a polemic sense in which these plagues unfold. They do demonstrate the fact that Yahweh, that he is the one true God and the only God, and that he is sovereign all over, or over all lowercase gods, particularly the Egyptian gods. And then lastly, and this is what I really want to highlight is every plague generally trends towards greater intensification and progressively gets worse. We see this really in three ways. Pharaoh's varying reactions. And he's just out of control in the eighth plague of locusts. And what I mean by that is his responses just get outlandish and wild, which to some degree he was acting that way from the beginning, but now it's like this guy is acting 
like a complete fool. What is he doing? We see his heart hardened. We'll see that twice in this passage. And then we see that the sorcerers cannot mimic or even reverse the plagues. But at this point in the narrative, where are they now? Well, they're gone. (laughs) They're no longer mentioned again. Not only could they not reverse the plagues, mimic the plagues, they couldn't even stand when the plague of boils hit. And that was the last time they're even mentioned in the narrative. So they are completely wiped off of uh, the pages of Scripture here. So as we get into Exodus 10, for the eighth time at the command of God, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they ask him to release the Israelites from slavery. But as we'll see, Pharaoh refuses and God responds with another plague, a plague of locusts. And that's really been the theme of each and every plague. Has it not been? I mean, this is what happens. We've got Moses and Aaron. They go to Pharaoh. They ask Pharaoh, command Pharaoh on behalf of God to let the people go. Of course he doesn't. Then a new plague comes. And that's what we see today. So that is the summary. But here's the big takeaway. The big takeaway is that God continues to reveal himself to Pharaoh and to others. So they will know that there is no one like Yahweh God. And we will see that as clear as day in our time together in verses 1 through 20. So I hope this study has been a joy for you, and I think it will be as we continue to work through these final plagues. So let's first begin with the plague of locusts by looking at God's private message to Moses. God's private message to Moses. And this private message can really be broken up into two main sections. Uh, Let's begin with this first section where God hardens the heart of Pharaoh and his servants. God hardens the heart of Pharaoh and his servants. Now, before I even read the text of Scripture, what is striking about how this plague starts, or at least the narration of it? The The narrator here starts this plague talking about Pharaoh's heart. Typically, we don't see that till when? Yeah, the very end. And you'll see why he brings it to the fore here in verses 1 and 2. So let's begin in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Let's stop there. So again, just let me draw your attention to the way this plague begins. It's the same introductory formula that we've seen, but different content. Normally what is recorded here is a preview or a description about the plague. If you go back and look at the first seven plagues, normally this is God telling Moses what's going to happen in the next plague. That's normally what's revealed in this first sort of private conversation. Remember, only God and Moses know this information, but here that information is left out. It surely happened, but that information is left out, and we get comments or opening remarks about Pharaoh and his hardened heart. Now, some would argue, and and I think this is true, some would argue that this shift in sort of the rhythmic pattern of the plagues, that this shift, talking about Pharaoh first, that it highlights the fact that this is the end of Pharaoh. This signals that Pharaoh's time is running out. The clock is ticking. His end is coming. There's no turning back for him. And even here, 
not only are we given a glimpse into Pharaoh's hardened heart at the beginning, but we're told here that Pharaoh's servants, even their hearts, are hardened. So Pharaoh's not the only one here standing alone in his rebellion against God. I think it's easy for us to oftentimes maybe lull ourselves into thinking that Pharaoh is the only one with a hard heart in this story. (laughs) But he's not. Here we're told that the servants, the officials, his assistants, their hearts have been hardened as well. But what is God's purpose in this? We'll look back at verse 1. That I may perform these signs of mine among them. God's purpose has always been in the ten plagues to perform these signs, to perform these wonders, to perform these plagues or these strikes so that they might point to the fact that he is the only true God. The Egyptian gods and goddesses are not ultimate. Pharaoh himself is not ultimate. The magicians and sorcerers who are no longer on the scene are not ultimate. And even Pharaoh's servants themselves are not ultimate. This is showing us here that God himself is sovereign. He is ruling from his throne in the heavens. And he makes himself known to the Egyptians all throughout the narrative. So God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's hardened the heart of Pharaoh's servants. But God, in this private message to Moses, also reveals that he has done this to make known his character to Moses and his sons. Now, this is an interesting addition to the story. We haven't necessarily seen anything like this in the plague narrative. So not only has God made his power known to reveal himself to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians, but here we're told that God has done these plagues, these strikes, in order to make his character known to Moses and his sons. To put it this way, to make his character known to the next generations. Verse 2. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So these signs are also meant to be recorded. They are meant to be remembered. And they are meant to be told to future generations of Israelites. Look at verse 2 again. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson. That's amazing. I think there's a wider principle there. We should be talking about the Exodus. We should be talking about the redemption that is found in these pages, that God has brought about these plagues to make himself known. This isn't meant to be packaged up and put in a time capsule, but we see here in Exodus 10 that these signs were done so Moses could tell his sons and so his sons could tell their sons and so on and so forth. In fact, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, the most quoted Old Testament book in the Old Testament in other words, the, the book that the writers of the Old Testament quote the most is Exodus, the, the whole story of redemption, which in fact shows us that what is documented here in Exodus 10, 1 to 2, God performing these signs so that generations in the future will know, actually came to pass. And in some sense, that's coming to pass today. 
It was sure true in Paul's time. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls Christ the Passover lamb. We'll get there. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul basically tells the Corinthians, hey, don't act like fools. You want to know who act like fools? Well, that was the Israelites because they saw the power of God but disobeyed him in the wilderness. So here as we head into the Christmas season, let's rehearse the Exodus story, in particular, even, even the plagues. But notice what is supposed to be presented to the next generation, not just the broader story, although that is true. But look at verse 2. I love this. Tell them that I made a mockery of the Egyptians. Mockery means to deal ruthlessly with. Some translations, by the way, will say this. To have made a toy of Egypt. God is basically saying, I am toying with the Egyptians. This is absolutely nothing for me. You could also say that God made a spectacle of them. So God says for Moses to recount, to narrate to the next generation that God has made a public spectacle of the Egyptians. He has crushed them and drove them to the ground. And by the way, I don't want us to miss this. Notice here that there's even a little hint of victory. I mean, we're only on plague eight. There's a little hint of victory here. Tell your son and tell your grandsons. The Israelites will move on from this day. They will go on and move forward. Why? Look at the end of verse two. Why are the plagues happening? Why does this need to be told to the next generations? That you may know that I am the Lord. There it is again. Mark it, underline it, highlight it, commit it to memory. This is the theme of the plagues, that you might know God. Douglas Stewart has rightly said, Moses and successive Israelites had been provided with irresistibly interesting stories to tell their children and grandchildren, not for the sake of the entertainment value they held. And let's admit, this is pretty entertaining, right? This is entertaining. But so that their children and grandchildren would understand who God really is and how important it is to be rightly in covenant with him. That's the meaning of know that I am the Lord. And as I mentioned previously, was the plague narrative told to the next generations? Yeah, absolutely. Key verses to jot down would be Joshua 24, 17. Joshua 24, 17. And then Psalm 105. Psalm 105 are just two examples of the dozens that testify this reality. So that's God's private message to Moses. Let's now look at Moses and Aaron's private message to Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron's private message to Pharaoh. Verse three. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall, cover the fa they shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. 
They will also eat the rest of what is escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled in the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Now verses 3 and 4, as you'll recognize, are pretty standard for the plague episodes. Moses and Aaron are to go to Pharaoh and they're to command him by the authority of God to let the people go. And if he refuses, and we know that he will, another plague will come. So we've gone from an elevated position where we sit with the narrator as he tells us details about a private conversation with God and Moses to now in verse 3, the narrator brings us down right into the heart of Moses and Aaron's conversation with Pharaoh. So you can see, and if you have time over our break from class the next two weeks, go back and begin at the beginning of the plagues and then finish the plague narrative all the way through chapter 12. And notice how Moses, as he writes and he recounts this entire episode, that he will shift us around to different vantage points. That's what he's done in verses 1 and 2. He's taken us from a private conversation between God and Moses. Now he throws us into the middle of Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. It's like they're all sitting at a table right here talking and having this conversation. We're sitting on Moses' shoulders listening to what's happening. Now notice this preview here, and the plague hasn't happened yet. Remember, uh, this is all previewing what's about to happen. Notice the preview begins with a, state, a statement of judgment. Notice these words in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. Now notice this. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That how long will you refuse, that is a common Old Testament expression which means judgment. So God is really saying this. Pharaoh, how long will you continue to let me pour out my judgments on you? In Jeremiah 4, you see that type of language. How long, Pharaoh, will you let this go? I mean, think about it, back to our chart. I mean, this isn't the first or second plague, right? <laughs> I mean, we're months into this whole debacle. Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. We're on plague number eight. God is telling Pharaoh, look, how, how long? Will you let my judgments be poured out on you? Verse four, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. Now, honestly, let's, let's sort of put ourselves in Pharaoh's shoes. Now, what was Pharaoh thinking? Every time that God has said this previously, which is seven times, God has fulfilled what he has said he will do. Pharaoh refused. He didn't let the people go, as we'll see. So God determined that he would bring locusts into your territory. Now, locusts, one of the main characteristics of locusts is that they have the ability to multiply extremely quickly and move in huge swarms to overtake and colonize new areas. In the ancient Near East and even today, they are known to devour full-sized trees within minutes. 
In fact, in the 19th century, there was a swarm of locusts that crossed over the Red Sea that was estimated to cover 2,000 square miles. Locusts were devastating in the ancient world. Of course, they're devastating now. But locusts aren't going to come and eat your local Walmart and Kroger. So it's not that big of a deal if they come through and swipe your trees. Of course, you would lose your shade in the summer, which is, we love the trees for our shade. But it would not be an issue if locusts came through here and ate your trees. But in the ancient world, this was devastating. They could literally wipe out an entire ecosystem and humanity in no time. Subsequently, uh, they would create years of famines. So this was a gigantic deal. Just in terms of the Egyptian pantheon of gods, they prayed to the sun god Serapis to show them mercy. Here is the sun god Serapis wearing a Modius. Notice on the, on the top of his head, he, he's wearing what looks like as a sort of a, a giant cup or some sort of clay pot. Uh, but the idea here with this god is that why this set on top of his head is because this cup was used to measure grain. It was used to measure grain. It was connected to the fact that he was the sun god and crops would be able to grow because of the sun. The fact of the matter is, is that the Egyptians would pray to this god because locusts would absolutely devastate the grain system, if you will. Some have estimated that there could have been trillions of locusts in these devastating swarms. Trillions. And we know that that was definitely more during this time. Notice the devastation of this plague. God telling Moses to tell Pharaoh. We get several key insights. Let's look at several of these insights that we get in this preview of the locusts. Again, remember, this hasn't happened yet. This is all a preview. The first insight that we get is that the locust will cover the land and impair visibility. The locust will cover the land and will impair visibility. Again, you, you can see how this is getting progressively worse, starting with the plague of frogs, right? Plague number two. Yeah, that was a little bit annoying. But here, these locusts cover the entire land and will impair Visibility, verse 5. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. That's amazing devastation. So not only will they cover the land and affect people's vision and visibility, they will eat all the crops and devour all the fields. Now things are pretty much in shambles to begin with because of the last plague. Remember last week we studied the plague of, okay, none of you are here for that? The, the plague of hail. The plague of hail. So here in verse 5 we're told, they will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail, and they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Next, they will infest all the houses of Egypt infest all the houses of Egypt. Verse six, then your houses shall be filled and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians. 
Well, lest you think this is just a normal yearly locust problem, and they did have locust problems in the ancient world, so we don't want to negate that reality. But the last key insight we get is that this plague surpasses all the previous plagues of locusts. That's verse 6. Something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came upon the earth until this day. Okay, so that, that qualifies really what's happening here. This isn't just a normal locust situation in the ancient world, although that would have been devastating too. This is something unique, and that's because this is by the hand of God. This is full-blown judgment on the house of Egypt. So what was about to happen to Pharaoh and the Egyptians was nothing like they had ever seen before. And notice the end of verse 6. Moses and Aaron had made this message crystal clear. Notice verse 6. And Moses turned and went out from Pharaoh. So that is a preview of the locust. Let's now look at a plea concerning the locusts. A plea concerning the locusts. And this plea comes from an unusual group of people. Verse 7. Pharaoh's servants. Now Pharaoh's servants are speaking up. Again, we're getting insight into the conversation. Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? <laughs> In other words, we are fed up with this, Pharaoh. Will you just let the people go? We know what's going to happen. And we are trying to avoid this at all costs. How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? This is wonderful testimony about the widespread destruction. Pharaoh's servants, which hearts, by the way, were just hardened back in verses 1 and 2. They are saying, Pharaoh, wake up. Look, we, we don't believe in the true God as in a salvific sense, but we know who he is at this point. And we know he's going to bring the locust because that's what he's done the previous seven times. Just let Moses go. Let Moses take all of the people. Let him go. I mean, they see, I think, and they understood how the intensity just kept cranking up. At some point, they had to have thought, if this continues, there will just be widespread death. We will be done. Ultimately, that is exactly what happened. Notice what they say. How long will this man be a snare to us? A, a snare, a type of trap that holds animals. How long will this man, Moses, trap us in these plagues? We can't get out. There's only one way out, Pharaoh, and you won't do it. They couldn't shake the plagues. They couldn't shake the situation. They had nowhere to go. So the servants tell Pharaoh, please let the people go so they might serve Yahweh. Look at verse 7. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? That word realize, you can underline that, circle it, box it in, whatever you want. This is the same Hebrew word that we've seen all throughout Exodus. Listen to this. Do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? That, that's the knowing motif again. <laughs> Pharaoh, do you not know? Remember Exodus 5, who is, who, is, who is the Lord? Who is God? I don't know who he is. Now the servants are saying, do you not know? Do you not realize at this point who this is? The servants get it. The court officials get it. The sorcerers get it. I'm sure there were other Egyptians that got it. But who did not? Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh didn't understand. So that's the plea that they make. Now let's look at a pact to avoid the locusts. All right, so Pharaoh comes around a little bit here. Let's sort of scheme. Let's make an agreement. Let's make a pact. Verse 8. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. What's Moses saying there? Yeah, it's not just me and Aaron they are going to take off and get out of Dodge. It's what? Yeah, it's everybody. Everybody. Also our livestock. Verse 10. Then he said to them, this is Pharaoh talking, Thus may the Lord be with you, if I ever let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now. And notice, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. So some time had passed between their previous conversation. We don't know how long. And in rapid fire form, notice what Pharaoh says in verse 8. Go serve the Lord your God. Two commands. He gives two commands. Go go serve Yahweh. But notice then he asks, well, who are the ones that are going? Who are the ones that are going? Well, as we already noted and saw clearly in the text, Moses responds by saying, look, everyone's going. Moses will not leave Egypt alone. Everyone, including the flocks and the herds, are going to have a feast to the Lord. By the way, this is a clear preview of the magnitude and the extent of the exodus from Egypt. It will be all of God's people. It will be all of their livestock. And according to chapter 3, verse 22, it will be all of the Egyptians' gold and their clothes. We learned that back in chapter 3. When God was sort of giving that proleptic preview of what would happen, God says, look, your people, the women, they're just going to walk into the Egyptians' households and ask for the gold, and they'll hand them the gold. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. God has decreed it and we're slowly making our way there. Well, Pharaoh responds, well, the Lord would have to be with you if I was to ever let anyone go. Shocking, but what does he say there? He's actually saying the what? That's the truth. He's just not there yet because the Lord is with the people and he will do what? He will let everyone go. He will let everyone go Eventually, Well, Pharaoh keeps going on here in verses 10 and 11. It's interesting what he says. Look back at verse 10. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Again, is he not acting bizarre? He's just in a frenzy at this point. He thinks that Moses is devising some sort of evil plan to overtake his throne. Again, he just can't see it. All Moses wants to do is take the people and the livestock out. 
and head towards the promised land. By the way, this is very similar to Pharaoh in Exodus 1. The previous generation, the previous Pharaoh, remember? Oh, these Israelites, they're increasing in number. Oh, they may overtake my power, my throne. I've got to do something about this. Let's put them in slavery. The Pharaohs, they're so power hungry and they think that the Israelites are going to take them over, which is really the opposite of what they're wanting to do. They're wanting to fill the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, get to the promised land that flows with milk and honey. There's no evil plan. (laughs) So Pharaoh makes a small pact. He makes a small pact. Well, you can take the men. Take all of the men. Leave the women. Leave the children. Take all of the men. Well, of course, that's not what Moses is going to do. And that's not what God's going to do. So he's fed up at this point. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 tells us in their previous conversation that Moses and Aaron turned and went out from Pharaoh. Now look at verse 11 in this second conversation. That Pharaoh goes to Moses and Aaron and he drives them out from his presence. So you can see how the conversations end. Like one of them is semi-cordial. And then this one, get out of my sight. Driving them out from Moses or from Pharaoh's presence. By the way, we'll see that same type of language when he drives them out into the wilderness. So that's a preview of what is to come. So that's Moses and Aaron's private message to Pharaoh. Let's now look at God's public message to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. This is the actual plague. So in verses 1 through 11, we've just been in conversation. Now in verses 12 through 15, we're going to begin to get into the actual plague itself. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So here's our introductory formula again. God is in charge. God is in control. He tells Moses to stretch out his hand over all of Egypt and the locusts will come. Again, we get several key insights about the plague itself. Let's first look at a supernatural governance of the Egyptian world. A supernatural governance of the Egyptian world. So God enters the scene here and he begins to sovereignly and supernaturally govern the Egyptian world. Verse 13. So Moses stretched out his staff And notice in verse 12, it was stretch out your hand. And here, verse 13, stretch out your staff. That's a call back to Exodus 4, the miracles that were performed. So stretch out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. So as commanded, Moses stretches out his hand. He stretches out his staff over the land of Egypt. And as the Lord directed, an east wind blew all day and all night, bringing the locusts to Egypt. Uh, That word directed means forcibly. God made the wind blow. So for 24 hours, God made the wind blow. And on the following morning, the locusts arrived. And I think it's best to understand here that the locusts arrived and began taking over Egypt gradually. 
Again, to quote from Douglas Stewart, he says, The miraculous in this case included the control and use of the natural order. God did not manufacture locusts by fiat, but instead caused already existing locusts to leave a location where they had bred and matured in abundance somewhere to the east, to take flight and be borne by a special wind so as to be dispersed in a pattern precisely covering the territory of Egypt. So again, don't let the fact that God used wind to bring in these locusts deter us from thinking that God was somehow not sovereign over this. He absolutely was. The text tells us that God acted. He brought the wind and he ushered the wind in bringing the locust. He'll do this with the Red Sea in chapter 14, so we'll see this again. So we also see next God's supernatural darkness of the Egyptian world. God supernaturally darkens the Egyptian world. Verse 14. That morning the locusts came up all over the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again, for they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. So the locusts were all over the land of Egypt. They were numerous, the text tells us. There had never been anything like this, the text tells us. And then Moses, to put an exclamation point on it, he says, nor would there ever be again. Verse 14, the locusts came up all over the land of Egypt and they settled in that territory. They settled in that territory. That word settled, it means rested. And it's interesting, that's the same word that Moses used when he wrote the book of Genesis to describe the ark settling on top of the mountain, Noah's ark. That's the idea here. All of these locusts came in And they didn't come in and just leave. (laughs) They came in and made their home there. They settled there. Verse 14, the locusts covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. So we don't know exactly how this would have played out. Were the locusts so thick that they obscured the sun? It's possible. Were the locusts so thick in their swarm that you just couldn't see beyond your nose? That's possible. It's hard to know for sure. But I will say that this idea of the land being darkened is just a hint and just a preview of what happens next. We'll study that in January. So not only does darkness now arise over the world, however that would have played out, But we also see here, thirdly, supernatural destruction of the Egyptian world. So the locusts came in, verse 15, and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on a tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Again, the idea here at the end of verse 15 is just to demonstrate the extent with which the locusts ravished the entire land. Destroyed. Plants destroyed. Fruit trees destroyed. 
No green in sight, whether tree or plant throughout the entire land. This was utter and complete destruction, like had never been seen before and like would never be seen again, all initiated by God himself. So that's the plague. Let's now fourthly look at Pharaoh's private request of Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh's private request of Moses and Aaron. Verse 16. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. Now, we've seen Pharaoh do this before, right? His feelings get a little hurt. You know, God comes through with what he said he would do. So Pharaoh, he, he, again, he, he's going to respond here sort of sporadically. So he hurries and he calls for Moses and Aaron. The word there for hurry, it's used all throughout the Old Testament to describe animals running, gazelles running. So he comes face to face with Moses and Aaron. He confesses his sins. I have sinned, not only against the Lord your God, but against you guys. Not only does he confess his sins, he asks for forgiveness. Please forgive my sin only this once. So it's wild that, that Pharaoh would use this type of language. He, you know, it, it almost seems like he's sort of developing sort of a theological grid. I know that I need to be forgiven before God. Oh, and by the way, just even like on a horizontal level, Moses, you and Aaron, let's let's all hug one another. Let's come together and forgive one another and move about our day. That's so bizarre. So not only that, but then he asked them again to pray to God. Please pray that, look, forgive my sins. Let's be in right standing with each other. Oh, by the way, make another supplication. Make another prayer. Go to God, please, again. Look at the end of verse 17. Pray to God that he would remove this death from me. I mean, that, that is such a great description of the entire Egyptian world at this point. You, you can just sum it up with one word, death. Death. I mean, everything about Egypt had been completely destroyed. It wasn't just a land situation, right? Economically destroyed, politically destroyed. All of it was destroyed. It was nothing but death. But we already know that such a confession and such an attitude was fickle. It was temporary. It ebbed and flowed. He wasn't actually looking for forgiveness. He was just looking for relief. He was just looking for relief. So Pharaoh wants Moses to pray, and Moses graciously does what? He prays, and that brings us to our last point here. Moses' private prayer to the Lord. Moses' private prayer to the Lord. It first begins with Moses' supplication. Verse 18, Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. 
Again, just as we've seen with a few of the plagues, Moses prays to the Lord asking that God remove the plague. This is the third time we've seen this, by the way. You can mark that down. This is the third time. And by the way, if Pharaoh would have been looking, this is another indication that God is sovereignly in control because every time that Moses went to God and asked God to remove the plague, what did God graciously do? He graciously removed it. But this is what hardening of your heart does. You may be able to say some spiritual words. You may be able to regurgitate some spiritual truths. But when it comes down to it, your mind and your heart are blind and you exchange the truth for lies. But Moses graciously prays and we see God's gracious response. Verse 19. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind which took up the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. Again, at the command of God, the wind moves. In a moment's time, in a split second, the east wind is immediately turned to a west wind and the locusts were gradually taken up and taken out. Notice the language here, we've already seen it. The same way that Moses and Aaron were drove out from Pharaoh. Look here, it tells us that the locusts were drove out or drove them into the Red Sea. That same language is foreshadowing exactly the Israelites being drove out into the wilderness. And by the way, this isn't just by happenstance, but notice where the locusts are taken. The Red Sea. There was no other reason for that detail to be in there except to preview the fact that the same route the locusts took to get to the Red Sea will be the same route that the Israelites will begin walking in. So they were drove to the Red Sea, foreshadowing chapter 14 when the Israelites will be drove to the Red Sea. But notice the end of verse 19, but not one locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. Think of that, trillions of locusts drove out by the hand of God. Now verse 20 should not be shocking, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go. It's amazing, right? Time after time after time, Pharaoh strengthens his own heart, God strengthens his heart as well, and he will not let the people go. Why is that? You've gotta come back January 7th to find out. Pray with me as we close. God, we're grateful uh, for this story, this narrative, these actual events that happened in real time to reveal who you are. We're grateful that we see that. And we see it even more so because since this time, your Lord Jesus Christ has come. And he himself said to know you is eternal life. I'm grateful that you have given that to us. Help us celebrate the holiday season, keeping our mind focused on Christ, who is ultimately the fulfillment of the redemption that we see in Exodus. He came to redeem us from our sins for your glory and so that we might know you. In Jesus' name, amen.